The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. From verse 12, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, you have set up a king. You have established a kingdom and you are bringing it to fullness even as we speak. And yet, even as we speak, the nations rage against him and against you. It's true. And it's also true that you are not threatened that you are not shaken, that you reign. You have seen this, you have anticipated it, you have told us about it, and you reign over it supreme. And so we take refuge in you even as we also declare this King to the nations as their hope. So Lord, I pray for us here, this local body, and for your church here around the world. Would you give us hope? Would you give us refuge? Would you give us boldness to proclaim him amidst the nations, amidst the peoples, amidst the world? And Would you build up this king's throne? Establish his kingdom. Show its glory. Deliver your people. Bring justice and righteousness to the earth. That is our hope. It's our prayer. And Lord, I pray that today this passage that we look at in the book of John would speak to us, help us be shaped to conform to this purpose of yours, to face this reality, to move ahead amidst it. Lord, come, help. Open our eyes, make the scripture live. Be present here, I pray. In Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Hakan Tastan and Turan Torpal are two middle-aged Christian men in the country of Turkey. Arrested and jailed last November because they preached the gospel boldly. They are just a little part of the growing persecution of Christians around the world. You do realize, I hope, that in these days, more Christians are killed, maimed, imprisoned and otherwise persecuted than at any other time in history. Both in raw numbers and in percentages of population, the world is exploding in the persecution of Christians. So these two men, statistically, 
are entirely unremarkable. In fact, even during their case, their case is still ongoing, but even during their case, a larger story broke in their own country. Three other Christians were brutally murdered in the country of Turkey. So they're not even the biggest story in their own country of the persecution of Christians. But I bring them up today because they illustrate the point of today's passage, John 15 on into John 16. In particular, they illustrate this point because of what one of them said in an interview that I saw on the internet. While speaking of the uncertainty of their future, this is after they'd been arrested already, they know some of the realities of what Turkey is like, of what people around them are like. They know some of those realities, but they don't know exactly what the future holds. And while addressing this uncertainty, one of them said, but we are not afraid because we're bigger and more numerous than they are. No, he didn't say that. He said, but we are not afraid because the law is on our side. No, didn't say that. But we are not afraid because we've got a really good strategy and we know how to win friends and influence people. No, didn't say that either. He said, but we are not afraid because we know that our love of the Lord Jesus Christ casts out all fears. And even if we die, which might happen, and even if we die, in heaven we will receive the reward of eternal life. Echoes of John 14 and 15 there. Fearlessness in the face of a hostile world. Not that these men don't know what there is to be afraid of. And not that they embrace that like with some giddy happiness. I'm sure there is fear but they are fearless in that they don't let the fear control them, but they forge ahead through it, remaining faithful. There's no fear of man in these men. The love of Christ takes it away. And essentially, that's what we're going to be looking at in today's passage. We're in the last part of John 15. Through the last several chapters of John, we've been listening to Jesus teach his disciples on the last night of his life before the cross. He lived again afterwards. But it's Thursday night, just before he's to be arrested and himself persecuted and crucified. And he's been teaching them, preparing them and the church that grows out of them for what lies ahead. We've heard him command and model humble, sacrificial service within the body of Christ in chapter 13. And then he moved on to command that they love one another like he loves, sacrificially laying down his life for others' needs. And then he encouraged them to lift up their eyes and to look and to see the new heaven and the new earth where the reward of eternal life awaits them. And he promised them in his absence to fill them with the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of them, actually, God within, and commanded and called them to abide with him to hold fast to him so as to bear fruit that is spiritually pleasing to God and beneficial to us. And while all of that is going on within the body of believers, he's, he's teaching them this to, to describe and to structure their internal relationship. There's an atmosphere there within. There is also going to be an atmosphere without, on the outside. I picture it like he's building a little house, his own people of God are a little house, and that house is warm and pleasant and tight 
and cozy and loving and filled with blessing. There's an atmosphere there, but there's also an atmosphere outside, and it's dark, howling with wind and stormy outside. And he's going to tell them about that and tell them and us how to deal with that as well because he never intended that his people spend all their time in the cozy, holy huddle. He also intends that they depart and head out into the storm. Make him known out there. He's going to tell them about how to deal with that. He's going to tell us how to deal with that. Let me read the passage. It's from John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18 and moving on through the fourth verse of chapter 16. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, the meaning there is when the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. The word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The main idea that Jesus is trying to communicate here in this passage, the main point is this. Trust the sovereign Christ in order to, there's a relationship there, trust the sovereign Christ in order to fearlessly make him an issue in the world. Trust the sovereign Christ, sovereign, the one who reigns, who controls all things. Trust him and trust yourself to him. And as you do that, what happens is that you are enabled, equipped within, so that you can forge out in the face of fearlessness, not not afraid, but forging out in the face of things that are terrifying and continue to faithfully make him an issue like we must. That's what he calls us to here. That's, that's the, the thrust of this passage. And I'm going to approach that through three questions. Let me move immediately to the first question. 
The first point, I'm sorry, not questions. The first point, how he builds towards his main idea, the first point that we should be clear about is what is structurally center here. It's right in the middle of the passage. And we, I think that we, our church, especially need to hear this one. We must continue to make Jesus an issue in the world. We must. He expects it. He commands it. We each individually and we corporately must make Jesus an issue out there, not just in here. I say it's the focal point because if you look at the passage, you notice 18 to 25, verses 18 to 25, they're about persecution and response. And then verses 16, 1 to 4, again, about persecution. But what's right there in the middle? Verses 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness about me. That's not about persecution, but it's what triggers the persecution. Those verses right there are what causes the stuff all around it to actually happen. Persecution to break out against those who are witnessing about Jesus. It's right there in the middle saying, in the near future, the Spirit's going to come. And He will bear witness, and you will bear witness. You will continue to make me the main issue. Continue to bring me up. And the world is not going to like that. I'll tell you how to deal with that. He's plural here. He's, he's speaking the plural. He's talking to all of us, and He's speaking emphatically. As if it says, the Spirit will come and bear witness, and you all yourselves also will bear witness. Now, he's earlier said the Spirit's going to come. Back in chapter 14, he talked about the Spirit coming. And back then, he's also called the Spirit of truth. But what he does back then is he comes to us to bring truth to us. To teach first the disciples, to remind them of all that they've seen, to inspire them to write the Scriptures. And then by extension, he comes to us to teach us the truth and help us to understand and obey the Scriptures. The Spirit of truth bringing truth to us. But here it's different. Here he's the spirit of truth bringing truth with us to the world. Notice it says, I will send him to you. And then he has a mission to bear witness. You might, you might put it like this in a question. Why, God, have you given me the spirit? Why have you put the spirit within me? And there are a lot of answers to that. There, there are answers in chapter 14, as I just said. But here... If you ask God, God, why have you given me the Spirit? The answer in this passage is so that you can bear witness about me out there. That's his purpose. So we cannot say, we must not say to God the Spirit, Spirit, I want you to come and teach me, to comfort me, to encourage me, to produce fruit in me. And let's just stay here inside the house. I like it in here. And out there, sounds kind of scary, and who knows what'll happen. It's dark and cold. Let's stay here. You can't say that to him. You can't give God instructions. He's on a mission. He has a purpose here. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God is passionately concerned with God. And God's glory being shown, being seen, being displayed, being loved. And so God has sent God the Spirit to come here and make that happen. 
to spread him out beyond these walls, out there. If you say to him, let's stay here, God the Spirit's going to say, no. I was sent to witness about God the Son to make him an issue, to force decision on him. If you want to abide with me, follow me. I'm going out the door. Do you get that? That's one, only one, but it's one significant reason that God put the Spirit inside of you. Because he has a mission for the Spirit and a mission for you that are the same here. Bear witness. And you're going to need the Spirit. We will need his emboldening power. His grace that gives us wisdom and patience and sacrificing servant hearts. We'll need that. We need to be equipped, in other words, to be effective in what we say and how we say it. That's why he came. We don't convert people. We cannot bear witness effectively into the heart like God can. But we bear witness with our words and with our lives. We need both, not just one or the other, but both. Our words and our lives bear witness. And then we pray, God, cause these words, cause this life to strike home to touch something within people. Only you have control over the heart. Take it, Lord, and apply it. Make it real. Call those whom you're calling. We make the issue clear. God calls. God draws. That should take some of the pressure off of us. God saves. God draws. Take some of the pressure off. We don't have to just do it just exactly right. But it shouldn't take all of the pressure off because we still must go. We have to bear witness. We make Jesus an issue. We can't just sit back and say, God, you know, save whom you will. Call whom you will. God will call whom he will through us, through our words, through our works. Calls us to the task as well as himself in the spirit. To bear witness means to make Jesus the issue. And from time to time, we have to make the gospel explicit. I'm not saying that in every single possible conversation, you don't, you're not at the drive through ordering a hamburger and throwing the gospel in behind it. Be realistic about this. But most of us don't err that way. We err the other way, if we're honest. It's been 10 years since you shared your faith. It's been too long. Okay? It has. It's been 10 months since you shared your faith. It's been too long. 10 weeks, 10 days, I don't know. I'm not going to say. But most of us err on that side. We never get around to actually speaking and making the gospel explicit. We have to become this kind of church. I think, I think, that as a whole, we are weak in this area. Not every single one of us, but as a whole, I think we are weak in this area. I long for us to become a well-balanced church where we do a good job of building the cozy house because we must do that too. He spent several chapters talking about that, that we build the house that serves as a warming station for the constant stream of people going out and coming back, going out and coming back. Come back to serve and be served, to love and be loved, to be taught, to be encouraged, to be built up. 
and then go out into the world to make Jesus an issue, returning back on Sunday, returning back to small groups during the week, accountability groups at different times of the days and weeks. We must become that type of church, strong here in the center and deeply concerned about and consistently engaging with the world out there. We need to be that corporately, and we need to be that individually. That's what makes the corporate, of course, if you are that individually. How do we get there? How how does that happen? First, let me just mention, we're going to talk about fear here in a minute, a little bit. That's one of the biggies. One of the ones this passage is, is primarily addressing. We need to face the fear of it all. Come to that in a little bit. But there also are some, some practicalities that might be helpful. So I'm going to just give you three little things here that I have found to be a little helpful in my life. I know others have found to be a little helpful. I don't pretend that they are the, the end-all, be-all. There are three things that are helpful. Real quick. Make some non-Christian friends. That, that might be obvious, but I think... Many of us don't have any non-Christian friends, or we only have non-Christian acquaintances. We know their name, we share a cubicle space with them perhaps, but friendship isn't really there. We don't have them into our home. We don't talk about real life issues, us to them and them to us both. You need those kinds of friends. And ideally, these would be people that you actually relate to on some multiple levels, you know, like you have some similar interests, maybe similar kids in a similar stage of life. People that you relate to and can easily get along with, that you like them, they like you. Get some friends like that. Get out of the four walls here and build relationships out there. Secondly, pray. That should go without saying, but I'm going to say it. Pray. Pray for those types of people to come along, but also pray for your relationship with those people, that it would grow that honesty would build between the two of you. That God would be at work in their hearts to, to cause them to be thinking about things and looking for things. Pray about how you deal with your time. This is a big one for me. Be less selfish of your time, frankly. To give more of your time to relationships like that. Pray. Thirdly, the last thing I'll mention is don't censor yourself. Be you. Be full of Christ. Be concerned about his kingdom. Be earnestly committing yourself to walking in holiness. Be you around them. Don't scrub all the Christianity out of your life. Try to act like a non-religious person. If you usually pray before a meal, pray when you eat with them. Maybe you pray silently. That's just a, a little thing, but it's... I find myself sometimes when I'm around non-Christians kind of wondering, should I pray or not? Pray. Be you. When you talk about life issues that Jesus relates to, talk about him. How he related to what you're just discussing. Don't get, like, trying to work it into every possible angle. Be natural. Be you. Be a Christian. Those are three very quick little starting places Non-Christian friends that you're praying for and being you around will produce opportunities to talk about Jesus. They will. And if you don't do those three basic things, opportunities are going to be few and far between. 
It's a good starting place, but it's only a starting place. We must make Christ an issue. It's the first point here. But it goes beyond just the things that I was talking about. The text, if you notice, if you get the feel of the text, it assumes that we go beyond it because who is going to be offended at that? Who's going to get really irate at me for being their friend and praying for them? Not many. It goes beyond that, and that gets us towards our second point. And as we work towards the second main point here, I'm not going to give it to you quite yet, but I'm going to work towards it and note the general atmosphere of this passage. Let me just skip through it and read phrases. Note the tone. It's easy to detect. The world hates you. It has hated me before it hated you. Therefore, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Whoever hates me hates my father also. They hated both me and my father. They hated me without a cause. They will put you out of the synagogue. They will kill you. Now, the word hate, we sometimes move immediately to the most extreme form of vehement, almost seething at the mouth, hatred. Hate is really set in opposition to love. It's, it's a way of saying starkly, which camp are you in? And then this camp over here has a wide spread. It's not all foaming at the mouth vehemence. But it is making a general atmosphere clear. Is the world friendly towards, bonded to, biased towards, or against God the Father, God the Son, and God the Son's own? Clearly against. This is animosity here. This is not tolerance. This is the world versus God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God's people. And it's not a little competition between two friends. It's hatred and persecution. Those are the words he uses. Ostracism of getting kicked out of the synagogue. That would mean to be totally cut off from your society, from your culture, your family and friends. And finally, murder. Where does that come from? Well, the world stands ignorant of, he says. Not that they don't understand intellectually, but ignorant of and that they don't know. They see, but they don't see the Father and the one he sent and the ones he sends us. doesn't understand. Ignorant of and therefore in willful opposition it's all really clear here. It was that way in Jesus' day. It was that way in the Old Testament. Notice that he quotes from the Old Testament there. It's that way today. The vast majority of religious strife in the world today is all running downhill towards Christians. You can read in the paper about other groups fighting other groups. Once in a blue moon, somebody who claims to be a Christian will do something violent against others. The exceptions prove the rule. The world is still like this, bent against Christ and Christians. And now we come to the second main point. Why is it that way? Why is the world in a position of animosity against God and against Christians? The answer is in verse 22 and verse 24. Here's the main point. Let me give it to you and then show it to you in those verses. Why? Because... Jesus strives, it's his intention, his agenda, he strives to reveal 
the personal sinfulness and guilt of the world. He's doing that on purpose. He's striving towards that end to reveal something about the world to the world that the world does not like to see. Personal sinfulness and guilt. Verse 22, If I had not spoken to them, which by choice he willfully did, if I had not spoken to them, that's the word of Christ, his teaching, everywhere about righteousness, about holiness, speaking against sin, lifting up what is the, what is the perfect purity of God, If I had not spoken to them, they would not be guilty. Verse 24, if I had not worked among them, these unique works, they wouldn't be guilty. If I had not done among them these things that showed off a life of sinless perfection, of perfectly submissive humanity, shot through with obedience to God, perfect keeping of the law, if I hadn't done that, they wouldn't be guilty. Jesus walks into a dark world and flicks on the light. And everything is seen for what it really is. The written law, sure, the written law was here before him. But it was words on a page that nobody kept. Hard to get really into you. Abstract in some ways. But in word and now in deed, he pronounces guilt on everybody. Now that they were innocent, you read the law, you read the Old Testament, clearly people are guilty, but he, he makes it clear He surfaces guilt so it cannot be avoided. 22 says they are without excuse. 24 says they have seen. Makes it clear. Kind of like, this is perhaps trivial, but kind of like if you and some friends are are playing with a little mind puzzle. Think of like a Rubik's Cube maybe. You know what Rubik's Cubes are? I think they still have those cubes, all the dots around the different sides, different color. You get those things messed up, nobody can solve those things. Maybe some of you can, but I couldn't. And my friends, we get together, and if you got two sides, you were doing pretty good. Two sides was okay. That was kind of solving all the sides. That did not happen. You were kind of shooting for two. The thing's impossible to solve, right? So nobody even thinks about three, four, five, six sides. You compare yourself to one another, and you feel okay. I'm pretty good at this. Until somebody walks along and lickety-split solves the whole thing. And then you say, wow. I guess the problem's not with the cube. The problem is with me. Isn't it? The cube is solvable. It is doable. Just not by me. Or by any of my friends. We can only get two. In a, a far more significant way far grander scale, dealing with far more crucial issues, Jesus walks in and solves the cube. He flicks on the light and he says, look at me. Look at me. Perfection. Humanity, what it is supposed to be. Look at me and behold the beauty of God. Holiness. Justice. Righteousness, divine majesty and power and glory right here. And you fall far short of that. Far short of honoring me like I deserve. Of thanking me like I deserve. Of worshiping me like I deserve. Nobody wants to hear that. No matter how politely it is. If you say it like I just said it or if you say it really gently and quietly, you know, you're lost 
in sin and you can't do anything about it. Nobody likes to hear that either way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Your truths, your ways, all of them wrong. False, idolatrous. Nobody likes to hear that either. Nobody wants to hear that. But Jesus says it. He flicks on the light and people hear that from Him. They see it in Him. And because of the nature of our fallen human hearts, the response of people is not, mind-bogglingly, it is not, thank God, a way out. A way to be fixed. A way to be saved and forgiven. That's not the response. The response is not, thank you, God. It is, curse you, God, for being so demanding. They reject Him. And for pointing that out, they reject him all the more. But he keeps saying it. Now, by the Spirit, through us. They reject him, they will surely reject us for saying the same thing. We must point out human sinfulness and guilt. Why? To rub people's noses in it and say, hey, hey, I'm forgiven, you're not. Ha! Not at all. Not at all. But so the people will repent and be saved. You cannot be saved until you repent, and you cannot repent until you know you need to repent. So we preach this. We make clear sinfulness and guilt so that, to to paraphrase Jesus, people will know they're sick and they'll go to the doctor. You don't go to the doctor unless you think you're sick. And in mercy, Jesus is saying, you're sick. But there is a doctor. Come. I don't know everybody here this morning. Odds are some of you are still sick. And you need a doctor. And the good news is there is one. One. Only one. Come to him. He swears. God who never breaks his word swears that all who come to him repentant and believing get delivered, fixed, cleansed, reward of eternal life forever and ever with God. Come. That's the gospel. It's the glory of Christ. We need to repent and turn to him and find his wrath removed. The second point, we need to make clear human sinfulness and guilt so that people can turn. Verse 20 holds out hope. Some will hear and some will believe our word because some did hear and some did believe Jesus' word. But The whole tone of the passage is saying that most, however, won't. Up to this point, we have this this dual reality here. Jesus spent most of the passage talking about what he expects us to do and what's going to happen when we do it. If you boil it all down, it's not going to be easy. So how do we forge ahead into that faithfully, fearlessly? It's at this point that fear becomes an issue. Sometimes we don't have contact with non-Christians Sometimes we lack training or something like that, but really the bottom level, a huge piece of the bottom level, if not the whole bottom level, is fear. 
How are we going to deal with the fear of man? That gets us towards the third point. Here at the end now, we're looking at heart-helping grace. We're looking for something to help us face these fears and forge ahead. And Jesus gives it to us very subtly. hope to point that out successfully here, but it's very subtle. But he gives it to us. And what he gives us is himself, which should come as no surprise to you if you understand the Bible. The Bible is about giving us God. Our lives must be built on God. Jesus gives us himself. And it makes a lot of sense if you hearken back to what our Turkish brothers were saying there. Why aren't they afraid? Our love for Christ chases out fear. And even if we die, we look towards heaven with him forever. Hearts are fixed on something there, allowing them to face the fear. Here's the last point. The sovereignty of Christ is the foundation of our faithful fearlessness. The sovereignty of Christ is the foundation that faithful fearlessness gets built on. Sovereign over all things. We need to see that and bank on that. Let me see if I can show you where that is. Look closely at 16.1 and 16.4. Those two verses. Jesus says in both places, I have said all these things to you, the stuff that we've just been talking about, all the verses about what they're supposed to do and how it's going to go. I've said all these things to you in 1 and in 4. In verse 1, why? To keep you from falling away. In verse 4, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I'll put those together. I've told you all this, so that when their hour comes, when things are going their way, when, when they have momentum, when they have the initiative, and things are not going your way, what I'm doing here will help you not fall away into faithlessness, not shrink back into quiet fear, not turn away and be tempted to follow something else. He's trying to fortify them here, help them not fall away. So how does him telling them this help them to be fortified and not fall away? How does that work? Well, in a small way, surely, their expectations will be adjusted. Part, part of our struggle in many areas of life is, is a disconnect between expectation and reality. We think that it's going to go this way, and so our hopes are up, and then, boom, it goes this way. And that's hard to deal with. And so Jesus is speaking here. He's kind of recalibrating their expectations. He's saying, people are not going to like you. And, and just so you know, it's because of me. It's really not about you. It's because of me, and it's not going to go well with you. So be ready. That's how it will be. So there's some help there, but there is a more significant way that Jesus is helping us. He's bringing himself here to center stage. Verse 4. I have said these things so that you may remember that I told them to you. Cutting out the middle part there about when their hour comes. I have said these things so that you may remember that I told them to you. You see that there. I have told you so that you'll remember that I told you. Put a little emphasis on that. I have told you so that you'll remember that I told you. Stuff's going to happen. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be on trial. And what's going to pop into your mind is Jesus said this was going to happen. 
even when we had no idea and thought it was going to go the other way. Just like Jesus told us Judas was going to betray him when we had no idea and thought it was going to go the other way. Just like Jesus told us the faith and the, the acclaim from the crowds, it's not real. When we thought it was going to go the other way. How many times did we see Jesus read people's hearts, know the future, and pronounce it before it came to pass? And the next step in that train of thought is not, huh, well that's interesting, Jesus knows the future. It's not that. The next step is rather, Jesus knows the future, which means what about Jesus? The next step in the train of thought goes to the identity of Jesus. Think about a passage that they all would have known because it's in a famous section in the book of Isaiah. The 40s in the book of Isaiah are God, in a sense, talking smack with the idols of Israel. I'm God, they aren't. And let me show you some ways. And in chapter 46, verse 8, he speaks like this, speaking to faithless Israel, and he separates himself from all their false gods, like this, you kind of hear the words of Jesus here. He says, remember this and stand firm. Don't, don't fall away. Remember this, stand firm, recall it to mind. Verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And here's the identifying mark. Here's what marks me as God and them as not. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Go ahead and ask the idol to tell you what's going to happen. It won't. Try to figure it out yourselves perfectly every time. You can't. Only I can, says God. Because I'm God. I know the future because it's my future. I know what's going to happen because I'm carrying out my purposes, my agenda. I execute the future. I surely know it. Let me tell it to you right now. Proving who I am. That I am the one who reigns over all of these times. Over all of your times. Turn to me. Stand firm with me. Trust me. That's God's argument in Isaiah. Calling the people to him. It's Jesus' argument very subtly. Much more subtly here than in Isaiah. It's Jesus' argument here in John as well. Things are going to happen to you. And when they happen, remember that I knew they were going to happen. And I told you about them. The mark of God is on me. I'm in charge of them. To know them is to reign over them from God's perspective. I'm in charge. The word I'm using here is I'm sovereign. The reason I know the future is that I'm the one executing the future. So I get the last say on it. And I'm on your side. my beloved, my own. I know what's going to happen to you. I'm taking you there. And I'll take you past there. Through there. 
I'm at your side in charge of everything. And when it happens, remember this moment when I'm giving you a little clue about that. It can be helpful to know the future possibilities so as to adjust your expectations, but it is even more helpful to, ho- to know the one who holds the future possibilities in his hands. Lean on him. Remember him in the darkest hour. Realize that Jesus is not surprised by it. He's still on his throne. He's brought it to pass. He has more in store. Now, absolutely, he works in, shall we say, intriguing ways. Who would have thought that the death of the Messiah would be a good thing in God's plan? Who would have thought that the death of all 11 of these apostles would be a good thing in God's plan? Who would have thought that the death of three Turkish Christians and the imprisonment of two others and countless others would be in God's plan? But it is. We have to hold up those realities against a God who is sovereign and sworn to be good to His people and trust Him moving ahead into the face of that hostility. Now that's really, it's simple for me to say that here. What's going to happen to us here? People might laugh at us. I mean, maybe you might lose your job. There hasn't been anybody martyred in this country in a really long time. That I know of, at least. Other parts of the world, daily. Always going on. Look at the map out here. I think it's still hanging up about the persecuted church around the world. The action packs that we're doing for VBS. It's reality in much of the world. It's reality for our two Turkish brothers there. We don't know what's going to happen. We're not afraid, though, because we know Christ and what Christ brings us in the future over which he is sovereign. Obviously, Jesus' application of this is to evangelism. And we need to hear that and apply it to that and go out there and open our mouths and make Jesus an issue and make human sinfulness and guilt an issue so that people can repent and be forgiven. That's what the passage is about. But I note, and I want to bring up here very briefly, how we can bend this to apply to a bunch of different situations. The sovereignty of Christ is the foundation for faithful fearlessness in anything. Not just in evangelism, in in anything in life. In any place where you find yourself fearing other people, or fearing possibilities or circumstances. If you find yourself threatened by pain or loss, or tempted to, to run somewhere else to some other deliverer, or to fix things with your own hands if you can. In all those situations, the sovereignty of Christ says, I know your today, and I know your tomorrow. I reign over it. I will deliver you. I'm at your side. It's my future as well as yours. Trust me. A really simple way that I had to work this through in my own life. In recent months, I have spent several trips and fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars $1,600 at a car repair place, and I'm not really sure there was anything wrong to start with. And as the bills began to kind of mount, and I began to kind of get behind this a little bit, I thought, I'm getting ripped off, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I didn't have $1,600 just lying around on my dresser. 
But the sovereignty of Christ speaks to that, does it not? Was that a surprise to Jesus? No. Did Jesus know if there was or was not something actually wrong with my car? Yes. Even if there wasn't anything wrong in the first place, he brought me to it and will bring me through it. He knows my tomorrow. He knows whether or not I need that $1,600. The real issue is, Steve, do you trust me? Brother, sister, do you trust him? With whatever's going on in your life, and in particular, do you trust him out there with Christ on your lips? The sovereignty of Christ is the foundation of all lasting, faithful fearlessness. Trust him. Let me pray. Gracious God, we cannot conjure up within ourselves trust. Hear the words of those brothers of ours in Turkey, and that comes from the Spirit capturing hearts and minds and setting them on you. So I pray, would you do that within us here? Apply it to evangelism. Apply it to many other things in our lives. Lord, would you cause us to bank our lives on your sovereignty and to trust you and to hope in you. Give you great thanks for this, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.